Welcome to Belfast City Vineyard, where we are pursuing formation in the presence of Jesus, community gathered around him, and the impact he empowers us to bring in our families, city, and the world. The following message was given at one of our Sunday services. For more information, visit our website at BelfastCityVineyard.com. Again, good morning and welcome to BCV. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Alan. I am part of the team here. And I know last week Andy promised you some new, fresh faces um, on the preaching team. I am not they. This is neither fresh nor new. I am sorry to disappoint, but we are so excited to see what God has for us as we journey through the book of Mark together over the next coming months. And as we hear from some other voices uh, in our community, it's going to be great. So please do come along on the journey with us. Uh, hopefully you've been tracking with us over the last few weeks as, as Andy has teed us up with you know, what is a gospel and, and then given us some of that background info on Mark and, and where he's writing from and the context he's writing into and then opened up those first few verses for us last week. They were, were so, so good. If you missed it, definitely go back and catch some of those on YouTube or on podcasts. But today, Mark has us running forward at breakneck speed. So uh, maybe kind of buckle up as we get ready for it. So have you ever had that experience of you know, receiving a text or an email or a message to say that someone wants to meet with you for a chat? You know, maybe it's, can we grab a chat sometime soon? Or maybe the slightly more sinister, we need to talk. Um, but either way, what does that do in you? I bet for lots of us, our first response is, oh no, what have I done? What have I got wrong? Or, or maybe that's just me. I bet like actually a whole chunk of us are experiencing kind of like mild anxiety right now, just at the idea of the scenario. Well, don't worry, we'll, we'll pray for you later on. But for me, I'll, you know, when that comes up, I'll reply, sure, no problem, let's log it in. And then internally, I'll be freaking out. You know, I'll start racking my brains for all the mistakes I've made and the things I've done and even thought that were offside. I'll start, you know, working out how could they possibly know about the thing that I thought about them the last time that we met up or, or who have I said something to that's been misconstrued and now it's escalated or, you know, what have I said that I would do and I've totally forgotten to do it and now I'm in trouble and I will spend chunks of time until we meet fretting and obsessing and when the meeting comes I'll arrive usually at about a half a dozen things that I've definitely done wrong that I'm probably get about to get attacked for or accused of and if I'm really freaking out I'll have a pretty you know decent defense lined up in my head for all of them um, I'll sit there you know for through the the first few minutes of that meeting waiting for the shoe to drop you know When's this thing really going to get going? When are they going to get to accusing me of something? Uh, and only to realize almost every time it was all in my head. You know, it's, it's not that I'm in any sort of trouble. In fact, it was never about me in the first place. And I've just missed the majority of what they're trying to tell me because I'm a little bit self-obsessed. I'm a little bit inside my own head. Does anybody resonate with that? More of you than probably would care to admit, I would guess. But so 
often we're actually guilty of approaching the Bible the same way. You know, maybe not freaking out about the things that we've done wrong or got wrong. Maybe, maybe that's how we approach it. But in general, assuming that first and foremost, every passage we read is primarily about us. You know, that we are the center of attention. And many of us have actually been trained to approach the Bible this way. You know, what can I get from this passage? What does this story say to me? How can I apply this character or that character's actions to my life? And I'm not saying those lessons aren't in there. But first and foremost, the Bible is not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. We are not the center of the story. Mark, more overtly than some of the other biblical writers, you know, is at pains to tell us this. He wants to show us primarily who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And only then, after that, what it might look like for us to follow in his way. And when we approach the Bible with a different lens, you know, looking for 10 top tips to be a better husband, you know, all the wives are amening, or, or five ways to handle our money better, or you know, what are the top strategies for overcoming our anxiety or our guilt. We are reading the Bible through a lens that it was never written with. We are putting ourselves at the center, making it about us when it's actually all about Jesus. And it's a subtle shift, but a really, really important one. And I've been trying to train myself over this last season, these last few years, to look for Jesus in every passage that I read. To ask, what does the writer want me to grasp about who God is, your Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, His nature, His character, His mission, before I rush to what about me? And I say all that because I believe part of Mark's you know, relentless pace that he writes with is because it's all about Jesus. He's first and foremost wanting us to grasp who Jesus is and what he came to do. He glosses over lots of details that Matthew and Luke include, details that might make it easier for us to draw out you know, detailed life lessons and things that we could apply to ourselves, but I think that might be intentional. The passage we're gonna look at has tons more detail in other gospels, and I was really tempted as I prepared to delve into them and to, to draw out some other themes, but actually I want us to stay true to Mark's writing today and to let him lead us where I think he intended to lead us. That idea that it's not about us, it's all about Jesus. So let's, uh, let's read together. We're gonna to be looking at Mark 1, verses 9 to 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And at once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Four short verses here with a mountain of action just squeezed 
in. And you know, these verses aren't about whether we should or shouldn't get baptized and how we should be baptized and what kind of baptism is important. And they aren't even primarily about how we should handle temptation and how we should respond when we're tempted. That would be making us the center. First and foremost, Mark is declaring, here is more evidence for who I've told you Jesus is. And we get here also our first indications of what he came to do. Now you, dear reader, decide how you will live in light of that. That's what Mark's doing here. And I'm not saying baptism isn't important. It's really important. And nor am I saying that we don't need help to overcome temptation. Of course we do. I'm simply saying it isn't the main thrust of what Mark is trying to show us here in this passage. So Mark has shown us who Jesus is in his opening line. He's given us some evidence to back that up, you know, to back up his claim as John the Baptist fulfills some of those Old Testament prophecies that he's shown us. And now in dramatic fashion, heaven affirms what John has already announced. Heaven affirms what John has announced. As Jesus shows up to be baptized, he isn't seeking salvation or forgiveness from sins or trying to flee from God's wrath. The repentance that John's baptism signifies and the rebirth that baptism would come to signify aren't needed by Jesus. Here at this moment, instead, he is choosing to identify with his people, to take on the role of Israel's deliverer. Just as Moses laid down his royal standing in Exodus in Pharaoh's house to stand with his people and to lead them out of Egypt, so too Jesus identifies with those he came to rescue. He steps down into those baptismal waters to become one with them. And this moment is pivotal in the story, so much so that when the disciples look to replace Judas in Acts chapter 1 verse 22, they insist that whoever they pick was with them from this moment, from Jesus' baptism, because it's here that his true identity and his mission are first affirmed. Even the location is really important. Some of Israel's greatest leaders and prophets have stood by the Jordan River. You know, uh, those hearing this for, from Mark for the first time, they would have known that empowered by God, Joshua and Elijah and Elisha had all separated these waters miraculously, that they'd stood at this, this river and they'd torn the waters apart, empowered by God. So significant was that act and this place that actually a number of years before John the Baptist shows up, an upstart called Theodos, claiming to be the promised Messiah, had gathered hundreds of followers to himself. He'd said, I'm the one that you've been waiting for. And he claimed that he would split the River Jordan to demonstrate his credentials. He failed, obviously, and his followers disperse. And Mark wants us to see it's a significant place and a significant moment. And where his predecessors split the waters and where others had tried, as Jesus humbly enters those waters and steps into the river, the river doesn't split. Instead, heaven itself splits open. The veil between the divine and the human is pulled asunder. You know, Matthew and Luke have heaven 
opening, but Mark has it ripped or torn apart. It's seismic. It's dramatic. You know, heaven is taking notice in a way it never has before. Something big is afoot. And we have these two confirmations. The Holy Spirit anoints Jesus for his ministry, descending not on him, as the NIV translates, but into him, filling him, empowering him, giving Jesus in his humanity all that he needs for the path he is to walk. It's not external like a badge or a uniform. It's internal, animating and equipping, uniting him again to the Father, being that internal source of wisdom, of life and of power. The Holy Spirit anoints him, fills him from the inside, and then heaven speaks. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Mark seems to indicate that it was simply Jesus who heard these these words, the, the tenses are direct and personal. It's, it's not this is my son that we hear later in Mark's gospel. It's you are my son. It's a deep affirmation and, and confirmation of his standing and of the father's delight and affection. And again, Mark is trying to show his discerning readers that Jesus stands apart from all other great leaders that have come before. Abraham was called a friend of God, Moses a servant of God, Aaron was one chosen by God, David a man after God's own heart, and Paul an apostle of God. But Jesus here is declared the Son of God the beloved one, a title previously only used for the whole nation of Israel or a king as their representative who time and time and time again failed to live up to their calling. And so the weight, the responsibility that was placed on a nation, on a chosen people, zones in to the one, to Jesus. He's being set apart to succeed where a whole nation generation after generation has failed. And this declaration of his identity, of who he is and his standing with God precedes his purpose. He hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't earned anything. He's humbly submitted himself to baptism, to a beginning. And before he can even get started, the Father wants him to be in no doubt of his standing. Robert Stein puts it this way, who he is determines what he does, not vice versa. Who he is determines what he does, not vice versa. His identity precedes his purpose. Mark is emphatically declaring that heaven affirms Jesus as unique, as God himself in human flesh, as the longed for and promised Messiah. He's leaving his readers in no doubt of the claim that defines the rest of the book. And he leaves us to make our decisions 
as to whether we agree, whether we find his claim compelling, and if we do, will we then follow in his way? And then, you know, just as you think this is a moment for lingering, for, you know, celebration and joy, there's been a heavenly declaration, surely this is a moment for rapture and glory and rest and, and, and feasting. Mark whisks us away to the wilderness. He's showing us who Jesus is and now he wants to show us what he's come to do, what that way should we choose to follow might entail. And it's time for a fight. Mark wants us to grasp that something has shifted in this moment. That as Jesus comes out of the waters and heaven responds, history cannot ever be the same again. Commenting on Mark's use of, of the heavens being ripped or torn open, David Garland writes this, What is opened may be closed, but what is ripped cannot easily return to its former state. Or as another commentator, Donald Jewell, puts it, Viewed from another perspective, the image may suggest the protecting barriers are gone and that God, unwilling to be confined to sacred spaces, is on the loose in our own realm. I love that. God, unwilling to be confined to sacred spaces, is on the loose in our own realm. So, so good. Mark wants his readers to see that right here, in the person of Jesus, a new era has begun. God's plans and purposes in human history have suddenly changed gears, if you will. They've shifted up, they've jumped into another level, and he gives us this very clear indication of just what that looks like. Mark tells us, verse 12, at once or immediately the Spirit sent him, or more accurately drove him, into the wilderness. And when he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Again, Mark doesn't go into details about the specifics of Jesus' temptation. He doesn't give us strategies for overcoming our own temptations or even focus on Jesus' victory over Satan. He's more intent in telling us that God has stepped down into human history for one aim, to pick a fight with the enemy so that humanity might be set free. He's teeing up for us here what the rest of his book will flesh out. And in 1 John 3 verse 8, we read it plain as day. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. It's the same language John uses here, that same title, the Son of God. He gives him his identity shown in his baptism and then his purpose to destroy the devil's work. And this would have been so clear to his readers. They would have been familiar with the Exodus story, with a whole nation being led through the waters of the Red Sea, just as Jesus has come through the waters in baptism, and then straight away facing temptations or tests, which are the same word in Hebrew, in the wilderness. 
And again and again throughout the Old Testament, the wilderness defines a place of chaos, of lacking and struggle and death, a place where the enemy is at work, a place of trial and of testing. But for those who overcome, for those who remain faithful to the way of God, a place of spiritual deepening and maturing, a place where reliance on God and confidence in His provision and His way are both put to the test, but then also found to be faithful. Jesus isn't tricked into the wilderness by Satan. He doesn't stumble into it in the midst of some other good thing. He's driven there by the Spirit, where he'll come face to face with the enemy that he's come to destroy. Where he will, yes, be tempted by Satan, but also tested by God. Will he walk in his anointed power and in his affirmed identity? Will he trust in the Father's way of bringing about the deliverance of all humanity? Or will he fight the devil on his own terms? It's a test. Look how James Edward puts it. The temptation establishes the free, sovereign agency of Jesus, who, like all human agents, must choose to make God's will his own. Jesus, it seems in Mark's gospel, you know, he passes the test. He returns from the wilderness and, as we'll see, gets to declaring that the times have changed. He takes the fight to the enemy on his terms, in his way, following the Father's leading and guiding right through to his death and resurrection. This is the way of Jesus. This is the truth of the claims Mark is making and will make about Jesus of Nazareth. He's dragging our attention and our focus off us and onto Jesus. He wants his readers to see in no uncertain terms who Jesus is and what he has come to do and in light of that to then decide will we follow in his way in submission and trust to the Father or will we keep ourselves at the center, choosing our comfort or our wants or our wisdom over his way? How will you respond to who Jesus claims to be? That's Mark's big question. All other questions, all other learning points of how we might do life better come secondary to that. Jesus is the center. How will you respond? How will I respond to those claims afresh today? As we close then, in light of these you know, intense future verses about Jesus's identity and his purpose, what can we grasp about walking in his way? Well, firstly, as it did for Jesus, so for us, identity precedes purpose. When we step off the center stage, when we stop trying to run our life our own way for our own ends in our own wisdom and place our faith and hope and trust in Jesus, what we step into is the identity we were made for all along. We receive simply by surrendering 
that position as son or daughter of God Almighty, of the King of the universe. We get to receive the thing that our hearts have been striving for and missing all along. That thing that was always available that we can't ever be good enough to earn. We don't need to be cleaned up. We don't need to be perfect. We don't have to have kneeled down our gift set and have you know, mapped out a life purpose clear and articulate to be acceptable to God. He wants to bestow his affirmation, his delight upon us free of charge. He wants to tell us who he made us to be and have our purpose flow from there. Identity precedes purpose. Where are you choosing to try and earn what the Father so desperately, freely wants to give if we would just stop and receive it? Secondly, it seems like a small thing. I love how Mark describes the Holy Spirit anointing Jesus like a, like a dove descending. The language here is a metaphor or a simile. I, I, I never really know the difference between the two. He's not saying he saw a dove. He's saying there was something about the encounter that was dove-like. And doves are known for peace, are known to hover or to float, as opposed to you know, an eagle, for example, that would swoop or plunge or dive at its prey. There's something here, at least I think, of great power, great significance coming in gentleness, coming even in a little stillness and peace. The heavens are ripped open, but on the earth, the Spirit gently descends. And I know as I ponder that, I can be guilty of feeling like I need a dramatic encounter with God before I can do anything of significance. You know, I see others being seemingly shaken to the core by the Holy Spirit while I stand arms out like a statue just waiting for any, anything to happen at all. You know, maybe you've had that experience as well. You know, people are falling or crying or groaning and I'm just like, is my nose itching something significant? Is that the Holy Spirit in my nose? You know, and I'm jesting, but, but the truth is we can get there. We can easily feel excluded or overlooked. And I'm not saying like one is right and the other is wrong. There's nothing wrong with traumatic encounters with the Holy Spirit. I'm simply saying that I'm encouraged by the idea that Jesus receives all the power that heaven has to offer in the gentleness of a dove-like embrace. What if we stopped discounting what God is doing simply because it doesn't look dramatic on the surface? What if we judged it by its fruit rather by the encounter? Thirdly, and maybe most importantly, the way of Jesus is to choose to enter the fight. He doesn't walk a path of comfort, security, and utopian serenity. That's what you might imagine he would walk as the King of Kings and the Son of Gods. But he steps immediately, uncomfortably, even painfully and sacrificially into a fight 
We need to be clear. This is what Mark is showing us. He isn't on a mission to do good and kind things and the fight finds him. That's not what's happening here. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness. The Spirit drives him. The fight is the mission. That's what he came to do. David Garland puts it this way in his commentary. It's not enough for God to win over human hearts and for them to repent and to confess their sins. Evil forces organized under the prince of power of the air must be defeated before the kingdom of God can be established. The power of God, as long promised, breaks into the world to conquer the powers of evil that imprison, maim, and distort human life. To walk in the way of Jesus, to live as he did, is not to do good and kind things to poor people. It's not to avoid sin and smile welcomingly at our neighbors. It's not to have nice meetings where we tell each other encouraging things. Those are all really good things, by the way, and we should do those things. Like, don't swear at your neighbors. Definitely smile at them and build community and build friendship. But the way of Jesus is to enter into a fight, a fight that is ultimately already won, but still bitterly raging. This is right back to where we started. If we approach this passage primarily about us, then I'm looking for some instructions and in how to avoid temptation or deal with temptation or some strategies for a deeper, more empowering encounter with God. And then I get surprised, confused, and full of doubt when following Jesus is hard. When my wants and my desires don't seem to get God's attention. And then I get completely blindsided and crippled by the enemy's attacks. But this is exactly what Mark is trying to tell us. He's saying the way of Jesus is to follow him into the fight, to actively and intentionally align our lives so that we might day by day, moment by moment, be partnering with Jesus in plundering the gates of hell. And to not just not be surprised, but to actively expect that he will fight back, that we are in a battle. What if the presence of struggle and trial, of difficulty, and even pain aren't signs that we're feeling or that we're doing it wrong, but signs that we're right smack in the place we are meant to be, walking in the way of Jesus, being led by him into and through the fight, not away from or around it. The wilderness with its, its wild beasts, is not a nice or comfortable place, but it's also not a mistake. It isn't a consequence of failure. It is the place where the fight needs to be fought. It is where the Spirit takes him straight away. And reading the verse about the wild beasts, I was immediately taken in my mind to the story of Daniel being thrown into the, the den of lions. You can read it in Daniel 6 if you want to. And I realized how I've always pictured Daniel as the morning comes around, you know, curled up asleep on top of a lion that God has miraculously tamed, like some giant house cat, you know, all purring around him. The passage doesn't say that. 
It says an angel shut the lion's mouth. That's all it says. It doesn't say that all night they didn't still try to tear Daniel to pieces like they would normally do, but they just weren't able to this time. It doesn't say that Daniel wasn't awake all night in a place of death and horror and even fear, actively in the fight, choosing faith in God over the reality of his current and present circumstances again and again and again. It doesn't tell us that. And I realized as I pondered that how easily I bought a notion that God promises to tame our circumstances, alleviate our struggles and remove our wild beasts. He never says that, not once in the whole book, at least not until Jesus finally returns. What he does promise is to be with us in the fight, to tend to attend to us as Mark tells us the angels did to Jesus and to sustain us as we stand. You know, a few years ago I was praying, you know, one day that we would see more of God's power break out in our compassion ministries and in Friday Church. And I heard him very, very clearly say to me, if you want to see resurrection power, you need to be amongst the dead. The fight is what we are called to. It is the way of Jesus. It isn't fought in the nice and safe and pleasant places, but in the wilderness places, amongst the wild beasts, in the places that are seemingly of death. We won't see God's work at par in and through us, and we won't see the kingdom come if we pull back when we experience difficulties and pushbacks and attacks. That is the sign to press in, to press on. That is the way of Jesus. That isn't failure. That might just be where the Spirit leads us. Where have you bought the lie that you're feeling or that it shouldn't be this hard? Where are you tempted to withdraw when God is saying, press in and I will sustain you. I will provide what you need. Where do you need someone to come and stand with you in the fight and to help you and to bear the weight beside you, not to pull you out? Mark will spend the rest of his book showing us what it looks like for Jesus to take ground from the enemy. He will show us what it looks like when God gets to have his way. And he will again and again and again remind us that it's not about us. It's all about Jesus. And that contrary to popular belief, we will only find life, only truly come alive when we lay it all down and follow him and his way into the depths of a fight that is worth dying for. That's what I see in these passages that, that I think Mark would draw our attention to. I know that some of that is hard to hear, but there is courage to be taken in knowing that Jesus walked away in front of us, in knowing that he knows what we're facing and knowing that he promises to sustain us in the midst. So as we close, I would love to pray for us. I'd love to pray that our focus and our attention would be on Jesus and his way this week. And in those trials that we are facing, that he would strengthen us and give us courage to sustain us. So Jesus, we 
cry out, would you come rest on your people? We acknowledge afresh today that you are who you say you are. We hold you up as the Son of God, the Beloved One, the One who came to destroy the works of the enemy. And we submit ourselves, we surrender ourselves afresh today into living in your way, to walking your path, to following you into the fight. And we say, would you come sustain us? Would you give us courage and strength? Would you speak truth where we are believing lies? And would you come heal us uh, in our bodies and in our minds? Would you break off the lies of the enemy over us? And would you give us courage to pass the test, to pass the temptations that you walk through before us? Come have your way. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful week ahead. Thanks for listening to this message. For all the latest information about what's happening in the life of our church, or if you have any questions or comments, head over to BelfastCityVineyard.com.